0: The opportunity in Africa is also the challenge, and the investors who can wrap their minds around this um, have a bit of patience, Will over the long term uh, reap uh, significant rewards.
1: Hello everyone, and welcome to Fintech Leaders, a weekly podcast where we learn from today's global leaders in fintech business and beyond. Coming to you from New York City, I'm your host Miguel Armasa. If you enjoyed this conversation, I encourage you to share it and please leave a review on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or whatever you get your shows so more people can learn from it. My guest today is Catlejo Mapai, CEO and co-founder of Yoko a South African payments company that processes billions of dollars annually and serves hundreds of thousands of small businesses every day. Founded in 2013, the company has raised over $100 million from great investors including Kwona, Dragoneer, Partech, HOF Capital and many more. In this episode we discuss the evolution of fintech in South Africa and some of the massive funding and regulatory challenges Yoko had to overcome since inception back in 2013. Yoko drew inspiration from companies like Square, but Catlejo shares how they built a product adapted to the local market and listened to client needs. Yoko's relationship with their customers and how they are empowering SMBs and helping most of them accept digital payments for the very first time, advice for international investors backing African startups for the first time, company culture, and a lot more. Hope you enjoyed this awesome conversation with Catlejo from Yoko. Catlejo! Welcome to Fintech Leaders. How's it going today?
0: Hey, hey, Miguel. Very good to be here. Really good to connect with you.
1: Absolutely. I, I'm, I'm the one who's uh, very, very excited. We've been meaning to do this for several months. I've been following the company, uh, Yoko, for a while. Even had the chance to speak to one of your co-founders, Carl Wazen. And, and so it's, I'm sure it's going to be a, a great uh, conversation. Um, but let, let's get started. Let's go right into it. Uh, uh, maybe tell us about your, your background growing up in, in South Africa. Um, and maybe uh, you can tell us, you know, uh, how, what are some of the entrepreneurial role models that uh, were, were very present while you were growing up? Sure thing, Miguel.
0: So yeah, I had a quite an a, eclectic uh, childhood. I was born in South Africa, Johannesburg, Soweto, uh, in eighty three, and you know my folks they come from Pretoria, uh, so those are really my roots uh, culturally. I'm from I'm known as Sutu. and uh, you know I moved to Cape Town uh, sort of two years, uh, a couple of years after that, and then we. Then moved to the U.S. in 88, Uh, so we were in Cambridge, and then Princeton in 89, came back to South Africa, early 90s, Um, and then went back to the U.S. Palo Alto, mid-90s, so like 95-ish, then came back to South Africa, um, did high school there, studied at the University of Cape Town, uh, and then started my career at Accenture, um, working in the communications and high-tech practice fell in love with the with the tmt space uh, it was quite a interesting time for telecoms um you know you had big growth uh, 3g just so much going on in the space and i was immediately attracted to the industry i decided to join a smaller uh, telecoms advisory and investment firm uh, called delta partners um which was working with telcos across africa and the middle east um I met Carl, uh, my one of my business partners there. We worked together on a couple of projects, became great friends, um, and then basically uh, after that, joined Rocket Internet. Uh, met my other business partner there, Bradley. Uh, we were part of the core team that set up Dreamia in Nigeria before Lagos was cool in 2012. Um, and then after that, we 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 you know came back and founded the company. I think. What is interesting is you can kind of hear a lot of context switching in my background, lots of moving. Um, and I think it really uh, got me to become a student of culture um, and just observing societies and just looking at things for face value and really getting to understand. And I also think uh, the, the, the context switching um, uh, really helped me to understand the nature of privilege um, you know I was in a position of privilege right uh especially in South Africa and even in the u s right we're in these nice university towns um and I really just started to understand these these dynamics and yeah I think when i when I look back now um in my life and uh, being in these diverse environments, understanding the nature of privilege um and you know just getting to meet lots of interesting people uh, I think the, the 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 starting of yoko and its culmination um really comes out of this right and uh, the desire to uh, deal with uh inequality uh, challenges uh, to work with interesting people and to um work on an interesting problem right that has a high impact so yeah that's just kind of a little bit the correlation between my life my background and and and, and the company
1: and so now it's been about nine years since you launched uh, Yoko, maybe give us some context uh, of how the um, fintech or the tech ecosystem looked like in in South Africa, back when you launched the company.
0: Yeah, it's quite interesting. So we founded the company in 2013, but we only launched uh, at the end of 2015. And a lot of That gap was actually um, what we were dealing with from an ecosystem perspective. So, you know, it took us a year uh, to get a a license to operate. We had to convince one of the institutions uh, to to sponsor us. South Africa is a bank-led regulatory environment, and we had to convince an institution, which was highly unusual at the time, and everyone thought we were crazy, and, you know, we literally just spent a year doing that. And... Then, you know, that was just one thing, right? Then you also had the topic of capital and, 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 and being able to, um, to actually finance the company. And that was incredibly difficult, right? Uh, the, the notion of venture capital was very nascent, um, in South Africa at the time. Um, the other dimension in South Africa is that capital is also highly concentrated. Um, this is just coming out of sort of the apartheid sanction, uh, times, like, whether we like it or not, uh, those dynamics uh, still exist in terms of you know how capital is structured and, and concentrated. So um, we uh, had to get pretty smart about being able to raise uh, money from abroad. And in those early days, it was very much you know angels and family offices, and you know we syndicated them into a company we called the Yoko Investor Company. And that's basically how we funded ourselves in the early days before we did our first institutional round in
1: 2017. So whether, uh, I guess, be it because of capital, regulatory pressures, or anything else, sounds like it it was challenging to say the least. Were there any points, any particularly tough points at the beginning, the first few years, where you kind of questioned yourself whether you were doing the right thing, and then, and, and maybe you thought that you know maybe this is it.
0: Yeah, it's a great question. I think looking back, um, starting was was really hard. It required a lot of patience and working through a lot of complexity. You know, I spoke about this license to operate. I wrote, talk, spoke about. You know, raising uh, um, uh, capital and getting people to do investing for the first time, right? Like, then there was actually, you know, going live um, and, and getting certified and, you know, uh, doing all the early stuff and working this very, very tight line of knowing that we were the first um, uh, startup payment aggregator in South Africa and that there was very little margin of error. So, you're now balancing. Uh, you know, staying within the line and at the same time trying to grow. And that was incredibly difficult. And I distinctly remember this time in 2015. Um, and then, you know, sort of going into 2016, uh, we're like, okay, we're going to figure out this growth, uh, uh, situation. And interestingly, what, what really helped to inspire that, um, and this is really where you see how important cross uh, uh, contamination is across ecosystems. Um, One of my advisors uh, organized a coffee uh, with me and Sarah Fryer, who was the CFO at Square at the time and, you know, highly influential figure at the firm. And, you know, we, we sat down at the square offices in late 2015, and she we uh, were just talking about the company, how we were thinking about growth. And we just had the most amazing conversation. And, you know, she just challenged me on this idea that we need to make a very clear decision around, you know, who we are. Um, are we just merely going to be market participants in the payment space where we're competing with banks for customers? Or are we going to be market makers? where we basically bring in um, a new class of merchants into the ecosystem uh, where we decash and we basically create a whole new market that didn't exist before. And she challenged me, she was like, it seems like you're straddling in between. And wow, like that conversation, you know, you kind of receive this this tablet from heaven on like what to do. And uh, I remember coming back um, and, you know, we officially launched the company to the market 2016. We're like, we're going to figure out the growth. And yeah, like, sort of moments with very limited uh, runway, um, basically just figured out how to grow. Um, and, and coming out of that, um, managed to raise our Series A um, in early 2017 off the back of 10x growth. But, you know, back to your question, um, that period, sort of in the early days of operating and trying to figure out how to grow and also just trying to deal with the cultural dynamics inside the organization of you know, walking the line um, from a security, safety, um, and, and regulatory perspective um, and, and managing risk uh, through to trying to grow, this is really difficult. And I, I really questioned myself a lot in those moments um, and had a lot of tough leadership lessons. Um, but coming out of that really set us on our way.
1: Let's talk a little bit about your, your model uh, you mentioned Square, of course. I'm sure they were an inspiration. And, and I, I think listeners are, are going to be familiar with your the basic model, right? POS, payments, and, and I know you do a lot more than that. Um, there are examples of companies doing this all over the world. But I'm going to guess that you have been able to succeed because you've adapted to the local market, right? You haven't just taken the square model and thrown it into South Africa. So maybe tell us about some of those local particularities and then, you know, how did you adapt the model uh, early on? I think the, the
0: the easiest way to think about it was what were some of the things that we saw um, that could unlock the model inside of our local context. So I think what we realized early on was, you know, the the, the card machine, the reader um, was just a component of the whole thing. But the business model, so being able to ag- aggregate these micro merchants under your umbrella and you're, not, you're just a giant merchant to another institution, this was really the innovation. And that's why we invested that year, getting this uh, uh, permission to do something like that, which was very important. And then um, the, the topic of uh, distribution, right? So how do you reach all these small businesses at scale at a price that makes sense? And, you know, in a manner where they don't need a human being to come help them get set up. Uh, and this is the key. And here, uh, where we got inspired was uh, looking at two industries. Uh, the first one is actually the, the mobile industry, which we were very familiar with. And at some point, we actually realized that the business models were completely identical. And that you know, in in, in the mobile industry uh, in Africa, you know, prepaid was you know pioneered um, in in the local markets, and that people could you know buy a phone, uh, buy a SIM card, and buy a scratch card on the side of the street, and they could make a phone call. Right? Yet, you know, with the card machine, um, what we had seen was that you know you had to call your bank, you had to make an appointment, uh, you had to sign a contract, like you had to be in a nice central area so somebody could come see you. Just all these barriers. And when we sort of said, well, these models are identical, um, why can't we have the prepaid experience in, uh, in, 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 in terms of getting a card machine? And that was really just kind of what was at the back of our minds in terms of how we thought about uh, creating, solving for the access equation. So I think that's just point number one was just sort of our framing was very, very uh, African and very much prepaid phone orientated and very sort of uh, related to our context. And then the other one is, uh, around, um, e-commerce, right? So, um, very nascent, uh, had the privilege of spending time building up Jumia in, 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 Nigeria and just seeing like the speed of the ramp and uh, completely caught me off guard. But then I just started to realize the simple truth that, you know, if you lack formal retail, um, environments, uh, e-commerce can actually do a bit of a leapfrogging, right? Especially when you think about distribution. And, you know, when we told people that, like, we were going to get people to buy a card machine online and that they wouldn't need a human being uh, to come help set them up, they thought we were crazy, right? The prevailing wisdom was that the way you distributed something in our part of the world was through people. And that was the only way, right? Because you needed to educate and all this type of stuff. And we're like, no, people can do it through phones. We can do it with a card machine. Um, and interestingly enough, through the e-commerce model, um, we were able to reach all sorts of corners of the country um, that the traditional institutions couldn't get to. And you just started seeing our product uh, appear like in little towns, rural areas, et cetera, without us even meeting these customers. And then the next thing is um, on the brand side. So I think when you look at some of these other players, um, especially the western Western ones, the brands are quite clinical um very clean lines a little bit sterile um and and just sort of this is all market context i think when you look at our brand um there's a lot of warmth there's a lot of heart there's a lot of connection and this is just the african way um and it was very important that we um, removed uh, any sense of uh, intimidation and fear around these products and that we we humanize them so you know, I'd like to think about this idea of you know uh, building great products with a human touch. Um, this is really what we set out to do, um, and we kind of have to do it because 8 out of our 10 customers are using a product like ours or accepting electronic payments for the first time. And if there isn't that human touch um, in, in the product development and even in the branding, uh, we would struggle uh, to get to the scale and the growth that we need to.
1: I've uh, heard you say before that you're building a financial platform for the underdog. Uh, And then uh, I was was smiling uh, because I I started kind of checking around YouTube and and some of those underdogs, some of your clients were saying that uh, Yoku machines are sexy. (laughs) <laughs> exactly <laughs> so yeah, t- tell us about that relationship uh with your customers especially you say eight out of ten are accepting uh digital payments car payments for the first time um yeah so maybe uh take us a, a little bit deeper into that relationship with your customer
0: yeah it's it's a fascinating relationship and you know, as you can imagine, a deep source of inspiration for us as an organization, right? They, they're why we exist um, and why we set out to do this thing. And yeah, you know, seeing somebody who was operating in cash um, in pen and paper, you can imagine, right? Under this context, like you don't exist. Um, nobody sees your business records. Um, uh, you try and get a loan, like, okay, based on what? Like, th- there's just no real, like, system of records showing that you exist and that you're trading. So getting um, a product like this into somebody's hands for the first time, and then now go on a digitization journey where they have verified financial records of what's happening in their business and trade. Um, and they're using, making use of the point of sale solution, to, you know, highlight what what what, what they're actually selling. Um, they get access to a cash advance because they now have trading history and we're able to advance them uh, capital on the basis of this. All of a sudden, um, you know, somebody's taking a digital payment for the first time. Um, they're using a piece of business software for the first time and they're getting access to uh, capital for the first time all through one simple thing. And I think... Um, you, you layer in the brand um, and and the care um, and the consideration that we have inside the product development because we need to. It has to be intuitive. We can't afford uh, to have, you know, folks explaining to thousands of uh, new customers we add per month how to use the product. It just needs to work, right? It needs to be intuitive. And we've done a lot of interesting things here as we've sort of scaled into the mass market to simplify, simplify, simplify. Um, but You know, when you add this all together um, and a very simple uh, marketing strategy, which is that we just tell the stories of our customers, that's our marketing strategy. And it's always been that and will continue to be that. And um, you add that all together um, and then you basically have um, this interesting relationship uh, that, you know, is beyond functional. Um, And it is actually a relationship of connection between entrepreneurs, right? We're entrepreneurs, our customers are entrepreneurs. um, And it's truly a privilege to be able to uh, work inside of that context.
1: So it's clear that at the center of the company culture, of of Yoko's company culture, is the client. How do you make sure that your team, how, how big is your team today? 350 people. <laughs> so how do you make sure that all those hundreds of people are focused and and bring it every day and 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 you know just are as motivated as, as you are
0: yeah look it starts with the purpose um so our purpose is clear uh, it's constantly reiterated and it's rare that i I, I, I have a conversation where it doesn't come up. Um, yeah, it's what gets me up in the morning, um, and it's the golden thread inside the organization. So that's number one. Um, I think number two is um, we uh, 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 actually invite uh, customers to our all hands, <laughs> um, and we try to do that as often as possible, and they can sit in on the whole thing. Uh, I do a little fireside with them. Um, and now in the remote world, we can actually, uh, just connect with anyone, anywhere in the country, which is amazing. Um, but just really trying to, you know, put a human face, uh, behind, uh, these products is really, really important. So, you know, these are just some of the things we do. Uh, we have a, we have a customer research team that spends time with customers um, we're, we're, we're always trying to gather insights uh, from from the customer success and customer support teams. But, you know, the most important thing is just remembering why we exist um, and who we're building for. And we're trying to get better and better at this. I think um, worth just highlighting here that, uh, you know, since COVID and now that we've moved into a hybrid and remote world and, you know, we have uh, uh, teams a bit more scattered Um, these things become harder, you know, there's just no doubt about it. And now as an organization, um, now that things have settled down a little bit, um, and we have a good sense of, you know, cool, you know, this is the new reality. Um, we're really just trying to work hard to figure out how, um, we, 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 we can get better, um, at, at customer immersion, um, as the team is growing and as we sort of live in a very live and work in a very different context.
1: At the beginning of our conversation, you you spoke a little bit about the tech environment in, in South Africa about a decade ago. Maybe tell us about the state of fintech in South Africa today, because uh, uh, obviously you are one of the examples uh, in in the market, but there are more. And I understand. Uh, from all my conversations, that you know, there's a lot going on and it's an exciting place. Um, so, maybe for the audience, tell us a bit about the, the state of fintech, mainly in South Africa, because that's your market, but also uh, wider Africa.
0: Yeah, so I think maybe worth touching on last year, 2021, and when we started seeing um, the first true mass deployment of capital into the continent uh, by by tier one investment funds. Uh, this was really quite a marquee moment, uh, something we had all been waiting for. Um, and in my opinion, just marked like quite an important um, inflection point and, and, and stage in, in, in the development of the continent. The continent is huge. Um, and you know, you speak about East, West, South, um, and North, um, you, you have different contexts. And when I zoom into, into South Africa in particular, I think you do see the distinction, uh, between, you know, companies, um, that have been able to raise, uh, uh, capital, um, from global funds and those that haven't, um, and those that have, uh, You've seen some really interesting things, um, both in terms of just like uh, uh, internationalizing um, in, into new markets, um, doing things in a novel way, um, and just building really good companies, right? Um, uh, coming from a very good baseline, so I think yeah, things are very promising uh, for the markets, uh, but you know, still quite a long way to go. I I describe today as ground zero, um, of the ecosystem. I think, you know, there was a, a, a period in time with, uh, um, you know, the likes of, um, process and asper's and, you know, um, uh, thoughts, um, in, in the security space, etc. But like, I already see this as like the, the ground zero period. And I think it's critical, um, that this generation of companies, um, is able to uh, you know get to good outcomes um you know potentially do an IPO one day but really create that context where money is flowing back into the ecosystem and that uh, uh, we're able to reinvest um, into into the next generation so I'm very anxious about that i I, I want to see that happen because that's where the unlock starts to happen right where money just starts recycling and the reality is that that hasn't started to happen yet
1: so you mentioned 2021 as being a very important year, seeing international top funds coming into the region. 2022 looks very different. Not, not just, I guess, not just slightly, for Africa. Slightly different. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, the whole world uh, has yeah. changed, particularly our world, tech. Um, yes. We we all know uh, how it has affected the U.S. But tell us what is different Uh in your market in 2022.
0: Yeah, look, as you say, this is a global uh challenge. Um you're seeing write downs of big companies, um you're seeing team adjustments and it still just feels that we're at the beginning of this whole thing. I think yeah, it's from an African perspective, uh the timing is a bit rough. Yeah, because you had sort of a very seminal 2021. um, And then off the back of that um, massive correction happening in 2022. And I think um, we haven't seen the full effects yet. Uh, My sense is um, folks who raised in 2021 um, and uh, aren't able to strengthen the balance sheets in some form um, over the course of this year and through to the next um, uh, things are going to get quite difficult, uh, going into next year from a runway perspective. And yeah, my hope is that, uh, you know, uh, leaders, um, are, um, uh, being prudent, uh, really beginning to hunker down on the topic of profitability, um, and, you uh, know, really becoming ROI oriented. Um, and can really, you know, or do whatever they need to in order to weather the storm, because uh, it's not going to be an easy time. But you know what? Um, we all know that uh, it's during these times that uh, great organizations are built, great models are built, great ways of working um, are uncovered, just sort of coming out of constraints. And um, I would say one thing. That's interesting about our part of the world. And I remember having a conversation, uh, with, um, uh, with one of our investors about this is that, you know, we, 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 we've had to deal with, uh, um, funding challenges uh, from the onset, right. It's, it's nothing new to us. Um, and, you know, have learning how to navigate that being smart and being deft. So I think that's the one good thing is that uh, I think for a lot of these companies, um, you know, the, 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 crunch, um, in, 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 in the capital markets is, is nothing new. Um, and that, that gives me a bit of hope in terms of, you know, companies being able to navigate uh, during this challenging time.
1: Yeah, I see. I see some parallels with with regions like like Latin America, where capital efficiency is in your DNA, and and exactly. hopefully twenty twenty one didn't change that too much. Um, how should uh, so a lot of investors came in twenty twenty one, but I suspect many of them are still very interested in, in Africa. It's uh, I suspect it hasn't been a complete one eighty. Uh, for for those investors that are interested in, in African fintech you know, what what should they keep in mind when investing in the region? And and also, how do you envision um, their investments evolving into, you know, a a healthy IPO ecosystem where actually investors can realize uh, some of those uh, returns?
0: The opportunity in Africa is also the challenge. And the investors who can wrap their minds around this, um, have a bit of patience well over the long uh, reap, uh, significant rewards. And maybe just to double click on that, um, this massive market, um, of underserved people, um, who haven't had access to a solution or a product that they have an inherent need for, but either through, um, uh, a lack of access or a lack of innovation or model um, or distribution, whatever, right? It's just not there. Um, and this is certainly the case for fintech on the continent. And uh, even if I double click on banking, um, it's like a massive, massive opportunity, right? To really, um, um, you know, get sort of the average consumer on the continent, a proper uh, a digital bank account, um, you know, with a, With a card with access to credit, and being able to uh to transact and participate this drives everything right what what happens with consumers um but this is hard um you're you're doing something for the first time uh often the infrastructure is not there so you have to build it um and you know there are no shortcuts uh that's just a simple truth and attempting to, uh, circumvent, um, the, the, the infrastructure and the platform uh, needs, um, you know, might work in the short term, but over time, you'll just start seeing unit economics begin to degrade and just the case and the story starting to sort of fizzle out and, uh, uh, a not so great outcome, uh, in, in, in the form of a, of an exit. Right. So we've seen this happen a couple of times. So my, my, my view is that, um, you've got to get behind the long-term picture Um, and uh, understanding that the real arbitrage sits in the long-term and not sort of like just trying to uh, do the shortcuts. And that sort of by doing this, um, you really unlock long-term advantage and a massive mode because you're doing something that nobody else wanted to do, but where there was an inherent need, right? And that's, that's what you want, right? That's where the magic begins to happen. Um, but you have to be orientated around this and I think one one thing I've seen um uh, you've got different technology ecosystems around the world, and we're all hyper connected um and we all speak the same language, but our markets are at very different stages and they need to be treated very differently um and you know when you're in an ecosystem where you can ride on the coattails of what's being built before you um you just getting to this hyper efficiency and, you know, you can do things so much faster than your predecessors. Fantastic. And that should be the, the, the the orientation. But when you're in a ground zero ecosystem, um, and there are no coattails to write off. And there's just so much that you have to figure out beyond just, um, uh, uh, growing the company, but like really getting into the fundamentals, um, of like just even regulation. Right. Uh, and, and, I remember like just how difficult it was for us to um, uh, just work through um, um, the the, the, the legal process of, you know, getting funding, bringing money into the country, setting up uh, an employee ESOP. We spent a year figuring out how to set up the right type of employee ESOP. These are the things we had to spend our time on, but... What has that done? It allowed us to attract talent um into the business that ordinarily wouldn't have come to a startup, but we incentivize them in the right way. And that's created this amazing long-term benefit. But the point is that, you know, if we were getting advice not to be spending time on things like that, because, you know, then we wouldn't be doing that, right? And we'd be rushing and like just trying to like do these shortcuts. And yeah, we just wouldn't be where we need to be. So that's really my advice is like orientated on the long-term. That's where the real arbitrage is. Um, and that don't see um, the need to build things um, as, as an obstacle, but actually see it as an opportunity because nobody else is doing it. And it's through that, that you actually create a long-term
1: mode. Fascinating stuff. And, and you mentioned talent uh, and sounds like you are excited about the future generations of entrepreneurs. Uh, who are just starting out now? Um, what would be your your message to them? Uh, you know, to to come and and build uh, you know a, a stronger fintech ecosystem.
0: Yeah, my message is um, focus on where there's a need um, and not just where there's an opportunity. Uh, I think it's really easy um, to fall into the trap of. You know uh, trying to disrupt like a small pie um by offering uh customers who have a solution an alternative solution um at a cheaper price that works a bit better but you actually fundamentally haven't done anything to the market um and i think when you look at the maturity of where we are and the inherent needs and and the need to pull people up um and to move people forward um, this is where the opportunity lies, and uh, I just keep repeating this. I, I would love to see um, entrepreneurs really honed in on where there's a need, because, uh, you know, you, you get a a, um, a double um, a whammy here, right? First of all, you have a, a massive opportunity with um, the opportunity to do something quite significant. And at the same time, you'd have impact, right? So these things actually work hand in hand. Um, And, yeah, I just keep repeating this over and over again. I think it was told to me uh, by someone um, and it had a marked impact on our organization. And I just want to repeat the message.
1: Thank you. This has been an inspiring conversation. I know. Uh, I know the entrepreneurial journey is not easy, but uh, you're clearly making a, a strong impact. Uh, what? What? Before I let you go, what inspires you to go out there and, and keep building every day?
0: Thanks, Miguel. Uh, it's this idea of um, market creation, you know, and um, there's a book. Uh, that was written by um this guy's name um Clayton Christensen um and Efosa a, a Djomo a on um the prosperity paradox um which is an incredible articulation of this right i mean uh, been living it uh, but actually seeing it in a book um and 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 seeing sort of the narrative Um, being sort of linked back to the growth of the US and, you know, the growth of these uh, Asian powerhouses and that, you know, it was companies um, serving ordinary people Um, and the innovation that came uh, around that and, you know, also exportable innovation that came around that. That's what really helped to build these nations. So I am um, completely engaged in this topic. Uh, It's, really what gets me up in the morning or drives me. Um, And yeah, just this idea that like the, 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 the markets and the evolution of a society um, and the empowerment of people can all work hand in hand into something powerful and that they don't ever need to be at odds and that, you know, a government's role around this is to support it and not to interfere, but just, Sort of to to support to amplify um, to provide you know a great regulatory context that you know supports consumers um, but doesn't get in the way of innovation. It's just very simple things um, that that I believe in, um, and yeah, certainly top of mind for me every day when I when I wake up in the morning.
1: I'm gonna provide a link to that book, and I'm gonna order it myself.
0: It's <laughs> <laughs> a great book. <laughs>
1: Awesome. Awesome. Well, th- thank you, Katlejo. Uh Fascinating stuff. Uh, I have no doubt uh, the audience is going to enjoy this, and, and hopefully we get some uh, some more South African listeners as well tuning in. I- I'm sure they will.
0: Thanks, Michael. I really enjoyed the conversation.
1: Thanks for tuning in, and I hope you enjoyed this episode with Katleho Mapai, CEO of Yoko. If you want more interviews, make sure to subscribe, follow, and leave a review on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or whatever you get your shows. It helps and means a lot. And if you have any suggestions or thoughts about the show, please drop me a line on Twitter or LinkedIn. Signing off till next week, I'm your host, Miguel Armaza.